you've ever seen any sort of media featuring hillbilly characters, you've probably seen them. Log cabins with a janky stovepipe protruding from a split shingle roof. Crude lean-tos made of rough-hewn planks. Despite their... modest appearance, did you know that these mountaineer houses are actually part of an architectural style steeped in the tradition and culture of the Ozarks? Today, we're going to be taking a look at that style. Let's talk about Ozark vernacular architecture. Architecture is one of many expressions of culture. Therefore, it stands to reason that if we're going to talk about architecture, we need to first discuss the Ozarks more broadly. From a geographic standpoint, the Ozarks are less than hospitable. Soils are thin and poor in nutrients. They're also rocky and prone to erosion. However, there are some patches of fertile prairie land. As you might imagine, the prairie areas and the rocky areas have had very different rows to hoe. The Boston Mountains are the highest and most rugged parts of the Ozarks. They're also the least populated area. The only places in the Boston Mountains suited for agriculture are the small stretches of flat land along rivers. To describe the Boston Mountains in the 19th century in one word, it would be wilderness. By contrast, the Springfield Plateau further to the north was at a lower elevation and had better soils. The prairie lands, while still scattered, were much more extensive. Around the turn of the 20th century, about 80% of the land in the Springfield Plateau had been converted for agricultural use, compared to only about 35% of the Boston Mountains. The Springfield Plateau is also the most populous region of the Ozarks. Because transportation and communication was easier, this region enjoyed a relatively high standard of living. Overall, however, there are some unifying aspects of the Ozarks. One is that the region doesn't quite fit in anywhere. The Ozarks aren't quite the South, but they aren't the Midwest or West either. Perhaps a big reason that they don't fit in with the surrounding regions has something to do with where the people who settled the Ozarks came from. The Ozarks were settled by predominantly native-born Americans of Scottish and Irish ancestry, originally from the southern highlands of Tennessee, Kentucky, and North Carolina. Most settlers were Protestant Christians, often expressing fundamentalist beliefs. Few people outside of this demographic settled in the area. So in many ways, the Ozarks fit culturally better with Appalachia than with the rest of Arkansas, Oklahoma, or Missouri. Ozarkers are characterized by a tenacious self-sufficiency and a traditional culture that lingered longer than in many other regions of the country. Most Ozark men possessed a high degree of woodworking skills and often built the buildings of their homestead themselves. To help illustrate the Ozarks a bit better to anyone who may not have spent time in the region, you might say the Ozarks are to Arkansas what Arkansas is to the United States. As a whole, the region is rural, poor, uneducated, and something of a semi-arrested frontier. As residents of this semi-arrested frontier, there are some pervasive elements of Ozark culture, including a strong bond uniting Ozarkers across the region, a strong sense of self-sufficiency, an anti-intellectual streak, partially fueled by the lack of access to formal education, an egalitarian mindset. The wealthiest landowners may have larger houses, but they tended to not have houses that were any fancier than their neighbors. 
and a penchant for making do. Making do permeates all aspects of Ozark culture, but I'll stay focused here and only talk about what it has to do with architecture. Making do might mean recycling a vacant house to use as a barn, or enlarging it to meet current needs. If that building is not in a place where it needs to be, it might even be moved to another farm or homestead. Old schoolhouses, having served their purpose, might become churches. Old wagon wheels welded together could be used as a fence. And perhaps one of the most common ones, when you upgraded your home appliances, your old washing machine could be placed in front of the house and used as a flower planter. I bet you didn't think that so-called redneck decor standard was actually part of a distinct architectural style. That's the sort of life-changing information you learn here on Mapstronaut Bonus. I could go on for hours about the culture of the Ozarks. Seriously, I've actually got about five more pages of information that I found just for this introductory statement. But I think you've earned your ticket to the main event. Let's talk about architecture. Okay, sorry, but uh, before we go on, I want to say something about this episode. Architecture is primarily a visual medium, and that's not something that is easily communicated in a podcast. I'm definitely going to do my best, but I highly recommend you check out the companion video to this episode. You can find that over on YouTube on my channel Mapstronaut. That's M-A-P-S-T-R-O-N-A-U-T. Mapstronaut. Like astronaut, but for maps. All right. Now let's talk architecture. Most of the information that I reference for discussing architecture comes from the 1994 book Ozark Vernacular Houses, a study of rural home places in the Arkansas Ozarks, 1830-1930, by Gene Sizemore. This is a very thorough look into the topic, and if you're interested in learning more about Ozark architecture, this is the reference material that I would most recommend. Sizemore documents six traditional and three less traditional styles of houses in the book. So these are the styles that I'm going to focus on here. Again, if you check out my YouTube video on this topic, there are pictures to accompany all of these styles. The six traditional styles are the single pin, double pin, saddlebag, dog trot, central hall cottage, and eye house. The three non-traditional styles are the bent house, prow house, and pyramid roof house. Starting with a single pin house. This is perhaps the most stereotypically hillbilly of all the house types. Single pin houses are one room cabins that are less than two stories, which might make you think that I'm just being weird about saying one story, but actually a lot of these houses had a loft that could be used as a sleeping area. They're often square, but sometimes more elongated and rectangular. Uh, single pin houses were almost always built from logs, and they were usually temporary houses. As the residents settled further onto their new land, they might choose to add on to the single pin cabin or repurpose it as a barn. Most single pin houses had a small lean-to type shed attached to the rear. Newer ones may have had stove flues, but the original ones had an external stone chimney on one of the gabled ends. On basically all of the houses that I'll be discussing, uh, the front door would be beneath the eaves, aligned with the roof line perpendicular to the gables. Now, if you add on to a single pin house, what do you have? If you said double pin house, you're absolutely right. Don't get used to easy answers. Double pin houses were easily built by adding a second room onto a single pin house on the end opposite the chimney. However, this wasn't 
actually common, and it was more common for a double penthouse to be built all in one go. The double penthouse is typically one story and consists of two adjoining rooms of approximately equal size. While there is a connecting door in the dividing wall, each room also has a front door. These two front doors added cross-ventilation and easy fire escape and additional privacy when making <clears throat> essential trips outside during the night. Both of these rooms uh, would serve as sleeping areas. This type of house also tended to have an exterior stone chimney and lean-to shed additions at the back of the building. The saddlebag house is a variation of the double pin house. The same single-story construction consisting of two adjoining rooms of about the same size. However, the key difference is in the chimney. While the double pin house has an external stone chimney, the chimney in a saddlebag house was right in the middle, in between the two rooms. Saddlebag houses weren't especially common in the Ozarks, but they were fairly common further north. That probably has something to do with one of the key features of a saddlebag house. They were fairly easy to heat, with the centrally located fireplace capable of warming both rooms at the same time. Additionally, sleeping quarters were often located in a loft, made even warmer because warm air rises and would collect beneath the roof. Another type of two-room house was the dog trot. However, the name dog trot was often considered pejorative by residents of these houses, who sometimes preferred to call them hallway houses. Either way, uh, the key feature of these houses is the dog trot or hallway. Dog trot houses had two equal rooms joined by a common gable roof over an open central floored hall from which the rooms are typically entered. So basically it was two cabins, two rooms with the doors facing one another and a walkway in between the two uh, and the walkway was covered by the same roof as the two uh, buildings, the two rooms. They tend to be symmetrical and are rarely more than one story tall. The rooms were typically square and the hallway between was usually around 8 to 10 feet wide. However, this could vary greatly. Some were fairly narrow, some were very large. In some ways, a dog trot was the opposite of a saddlebag house. While saddlebag houses were built for cold areas where your primary priority was to get your house warm, dog trots were built for warm areas where you wanted as much ventilation as possible, which would be provided by the open passageway between the two rooms. Uh, residents of dog trot houses often remark that even if it's completely still everywhere else, there's always a breeze in the appropriately named breezeway of a of the the house on the other hand they were very difficult to heat but that wasn't a big priority for many residents of dog trot houses uh, not only were dog trot houses common in the southern highlands like the ozarks they were common into the lowland areas of the south in the delta and closer to the gulf of mexico uh, because they were located in these warmer areas the breezeway would often be used as an outdoor room during good weather, and in the summer, occupants might sleep out there, uh, which would provide them even more airflow and even more uh, relatively cool air. Dog trots are more common in the most isolated areas, as those in the more populated areas tended to eventually close off their breezeways for added privacy, thus creating the next type of house that I want to talk about. 
Central Hall cottages were basically the more sophisticated and formal version of a dog trot house. Like dog trots, they were usually one room deep and one story tall, consisting of two equal-sized rooms separated by a central hall. However, while the hall in dog trots was open to the elements, in a central hall cottage, the hallway had been enclosed. Uh, the door into the house would usually be located uh, in that hallway. It was more common in areas that were more wealthy or along main transportation routes, again, because of the need for privacy being one of the motivating factors for turning a house from a dog trot into a central hall cottage. However, central hall cottages only enjoyed a brief period of popularity, with the majority of them having been built between 1851 and 1895. The last of our traditional houses is the I house. That's I like the letter I, by the way, not like the thing in your face that you used to see. Unlike any of the other houses that I've discussed so far, I houses were typically two stories rather than that being the exception. Each house was two rooms wide and one room deep, laid out similarly to a central hall cottage with a passageway in the middle. Eye houses were very rare in rural areas as they were typically constructed by more wealthy landowners. The prevalence of eye houses is often directly tied to the prosperity of an area. The more eye houses you find, uh, the more wealthy that area was, the more prosperous, the more, um, <laughs> I don't want to say habitable, but in some ways, um, the more uh, populous uh, often an area was. Uh, especially so when these houses were not made of cheap and readily available wood, like most places, but a more expensive and labor-intensive brick. Now for the three non-traditional house types. The first of these is called a bent house. Bent houses have a T or L shape. While they were usually one story, having multiple floors was not exceptionally out of the ordinary. Like Central Hall cottages, they enjoyed a very brief span of popularity, with most being built between 1900 and 1917. As they were more often tied with wealthier landowners, they were more common on the Springfield Plateau than in the Boston Mountains. A prow house has three rooms. Two are laid out side to side like in a double pin house, but the third projects forward from the center. Like bent houses, prow houses are also typically one story, but it wasn't uncommon to see them taller. Prow houses often had porches that wrapped around the front projection. The front door usually went into the protruding room rather than into either of the two double pin type rooms. Uh, as is becoming a common refrain, prow houses tended to be found in more prosperous areas of the Ozarks. One of the reasons for that is that that projecting room on the front of a prow house uh, tended to feature a lot of windows, and we'll discuss why windows would be indicative of a prosperous person in a moment, so hang on for that one. Finally, we have the one-story pyramid roof house. It feels a lot like the name describes this building pretty well. It's boxy, it's square, it's very similar to the Creole cottages of Louisiana. They consist of four rooms without a central passageway, uh, and the pyramid roof name comes from the fact that rather than having a uh, roof line and gables on the ends, uh, it just had four slanting 
sides, four slanting triangles that made a, a square pyramid. So the house, uh, the roof came to a point instead of coming to a line. Built between 1910 and 1930, they come at the end of the line for Ozark vernacular architecture. In fact, in a lot of ways, they could be seen as a transitional style bridging the gap between the region's traditional houses and the craftsman-style bungalows that would soon flood the region um, and had already flooded most of the country. But the Ozarks team tends to be a little slower on uh, a adopting new trends, especially prior to, say, the mid-20th century. Throughout the Ozarks, wood was the dominant building material. Since most Ozark men had some degree of woodworking knowledge, it was the material that was easiest to work with. While stone was abundant, for a long time its use was limited to foundation piers and chimneys, as well as wells, cellars, and fences. This is because stone masonry was more time-consuming and labor-intensive. Stone construction was also unsuited to the somewhat transient nature of Ozarkers in the 19th century. For many people, it was understood that if the land stopped being agriculturally productive, they would leave for somewhere else. Therefore, you didn't want to put too much work into your house. Houses were plain, and windows were few and small due to the difficulty in acquiring glass in the rural area. If you packed up and moved, you would usually remove the glass from your windows and take that with you. In order to save space, stairs were usually steep and narrow. That way space could be used for more productive things like spinning wheels or looms. Walls were insulated with paper. In more modest homes, this insulation would be entirely newspaper. However, if you had the money for it, the preference was to use a layer of newspaper, then a layer of cardboard, then a layer of catalog pages, and top it all off with a layer of patterned wallpaper. These would all be applied with a paste made of flour and water, just like paper mache. Alright, I'm gonna let you go, but there's one more thing I want to talk about. One of my favorite parts of Ozark vernacular architecture. Let's go on safari for a moment and talk about Ozark giraffes. Now, I'm not about to break news to you about there being some long-forgotten escaped herd of giraffes running loose in the hills. Ozark giraffes are buildings. Ozark giraffes are so named because the patchwork of stone on them is in colors and patterns that are said to resemble a giraffe. They're thought to have first appeared around 1910, but gained popularity during the 1930s, due in part to various things, including Missouri Agricultural Extension Bulletins describing how to build houses from native stone. Another important factor was the more widespread availability of Portland cement, which was used to adhere the rock to wooden frame houses. This marked the first time that the excessive amounts of surface rock in the Ozarks could be put into real use in house construction. A common misconception about Ozark giraffes is that they're solid rock houses. The rocks are actually just a veneer. <coughs> stone, typically limestone in the east and sandstone in the west, would be cut into slabs that were between one and a half and three inches thick and flat. Then the stone veneer <coughs> would be glued to the frame with mortar, which was almost always painted, often white. The stone veneer <coughs> Next week we gotta pick a different word. would serve as extra insulation on the houses. However, by the mid-20th century, Ozark giraffe construction was a thing of the past. By the 1960s, though style had declined due to labor costs being relatively more expensive than modern construction methods. 
This is because things like aluminum siding were able to be mass-produced and installed with relatively little training. This is understandable, but unfortunate, as the unique characteristics of every Ozark giraffe just isn't something you can really get with modern mass-produced materials. But that's just how history works sometimes, I guess. Alright, I guess that just about does it for this topic. Once again, I'd like to recommend that you check out the video that goes along with this episode over on my YouTube channel, Mapstronaut. I will also have sources uh, that I used for preparing this podcast over on that video. If you like what you've heard today, consider subscribing and check out the other episodes and videos. This has been Mapstro. Thank you for listening.